following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. John chapter 1, verse 14. Let me, um, let me read that for us. I'm reading out of the NIV. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Can you join me in prayer just for a second? God, we, we thank you so much for the privilege of, of studying and, and listening to and hearing your word. God, this is, this is our food, this is our bread, and we live on every word that proceeds out of your mouth, O oh God. And so this morning we come before you with total humility, totally dependent on you. And I, I pray that you would reveal yourselves through your word to every heart that's here. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase in this place. We thank you so much for the gift of your son on the cross, dying for our sins. And we pray that he would be exalted today. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the... Uh, one of the deepest longings of the human heart is, is to know and be known by someone, to, to love and to be loved by someone. Whether we're introverted or more extroverted, it's, uh, it goes beyond a mere desire for social interaction, does it not? We, we all crave a, a deeper relating, a deeper knowing, someone to know us in all of our flaws and all of our warts and to still love us, Right? And this is, this is what the, uh, the movie Jerry Maguire is, is all about. Um, I think one of the, the great appeals of that movie is that it's kind of got one of the most iconic romantic scenes in the movie, right? You, you completely, I mean, you, you remember that movie, uh, that scene in that movie? But it's, it also has one of the most iconic uh, bromance scenes um, in that movie as well. And that's why I think it has such a wide appeal um, across generations, right? I am um, kind of at the cusp of being a Gen, gen um, Xer and a millennial. I'm right at the cusp. But it, it appeals to me, right? It appeals to uh, baby boomers, I think, right? Um, that's why I love this movie. And um, if you haven't seen the movie, I'd recommend watching it. But if you haven't seen it, it's a story about uh, a sports agent named Jerry Maguire, played by Tom Cruise. And he's, he's fired from his company. He's left with one employee. He's actually the secretary there. They leave together to start his own agency. And all of his life, Jerry has, has uh, avoided relational intimacy, right? He's... He's uh, been so obsessed with his career. He's kind of pushed people aside. And it, it finally takes brokenness to, for him to finally let some people into his life. And there's two people that he lets in. There's Dorothy, played by Renee Zellweger, and also Rod, Rod Tilwell, um, played by Cuba Gooding Jr. Rod, uh, show me the money, Tidwell. He lets him in as well. And this is one of my favorite movies, uh, moments in, in the whole movie. Rod, who's a football player, he, he makes the game-winning touchdown. And he, he comes out of the locker room um, celebrating. He finally gets that contract that he's been wanting his whole career. He's kind of in the, the, the sunset years of his career. He's not going to have much life left. But he finally, he, his, his career is revitalized towards the end. And this, he catches the winning touchdown. He comes out of the locker room. And I just want to show a scene um, that shows what happens after that moment. Oh, yeah, I love that moment. Just give me a moment to wipe away some of these tears that are welling up in my eye. But... Um, yeah, more, more than the, uh, the glory of success, more than the glory of achievement, Rod, Rod wants Jerry, right? He comes out of that locker room. He's swarmed by the media. 
all he's doing is asking for Jerry. Where's Jerry, right? And I think this, this touches that's a, a real deep part of our hearts that craves that kind of relational intimacy, to be known deeply and to be loved deeply by someone beyond any kind of satisfaction that we can get from a worldly accomplishment. I think that relational intimacy is something that we all crave. Of course, human relationships like these are, are momentary, they're fleeting, they can be interrupted by, by sickness, by conflict, by, by even death. But there is one, the one who made us, the creator Lord, who knows us and who can fulfill us like no human relationship can. Before uh, we jump into our text, I, I just want to pr- zoom out a little bit and kind of give um, a wide lens view of of this theme of God with us, God dwelling with us as a people. I'm going to look at Genesis through Revelation, kind of take a a panoramic view. And then the second half, I'm going to zoom in to John chapter 1 and and kind of focus in on the text that we read together earlier today. But um, if if you've read the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God um, created the universe, right? And then the, the climax of his creation was the creation of man. Adam and Eve, and he placed them in, in a garden, the Garden of, of Eden. I, I always thought it was kind of, kind of weird that God would put them in a garden, but after thinking about it, um, when, when someone wants to, to settle down somewhere, you know, generally I think what happens is they, they start gardening, right? I, 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 my wife and I lived in New York before we moved to Chicago for seminary, and um, we, like, the thought of having a garden never really crossed our minds because we're always moving from place to place, right? It's completely transient. We didn't have kids back then. We're just moving from place to place. But it's the moment we moved to uh, the Chicago sub, moved back for me to the Chicago suburbs, and we started visiting the homes of some friends. We noticed that everyone has, has a garden, right? And some of the, uh, the conversation fodder after service is, hey, um, you know, like what fertilizer are you using these days for your lawn? Or uh, what, what are you using to mow your lawn? And I know Peter actually has a... Uh, a nice mower that I've seen him use, and he takes pride in that, right? And so there's this, um, this element of gardening. When you want to settle down somewhere, gardening is a hobby that you inevitably pick up, right? And I, th- I think that's, I mean, not that the Garden of Eden was like the great precursor to the American suburb, right? But there is this element of God placing Adam and Eve in a garden that he was, he was indicating his desire to be with them for a really, really long time. And that was his intent from the start. He wanted to dwell with Adam and Eve Forever, he put them in this garden. He put trees there, fruit, vegetables for them to enjoy with both their eyes and with their mouths, right? And from the beginning, God wanted to dwell with his people. But the very next chapter, in chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel. Instead of wanting to, to be with God and enjoying his presence forever, they actually want to be God, right? They take a bite from the, tr- the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They want to have the same knowledge and the same power that God has, they, they basically take him off of the throne and they put themselves in it. And instead of wanting to enjoy God's presence, they instead want to replace God, right? And basically, from, from that point on through the rest of creation, Revelation, is, is God just reversing the effects of the fall. And Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity kind of fleeing from God, but God in his great mercy pursuing after man, wanting them to dwell with him forever, but man still running away from God. If you know the story, God creates this nation called Israel, and he puts in Israel a little, um, not a little, but actually like a very large tent, like a canopy type of structure called a tabernacle. And basically the tabernacle is a place where God can, can dwell in limited ways, right? And he can dwell in limited ways with his people. He can't reveal himself totally 
because of man's sinfulness, right? If he were to show himself in an unmediated sense, man would just be completely disintegrated in his presence, right? That's why he creates his tabernacle, kind of a mediated way, a limited way for him to dwell with his people. And that eventually pointed forward to the temple that's created as more of a permanent structure. But even the temple pointed forward to Jesus Christ, who is kind of our ultimate temple, the way that God dwells with his people in the form of a person. And then you get to the end, right? So we're, we're, kind, of, we're kind of going through Genesis, through the New Testament. Now we go to the end in Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, you don't have to turn there. It says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Later on in that chapter, it says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. This, this is how the Bible ends. We go from God creating this provisional structure called the tabernacle, which gives way to the temple, and ultimately, the person of Christ is, is the living temple of God. And at the end, there is no temple because we'll be in God's presence with him, relating with him without any mediation, right? Relating with him, unhindered presence forever. There is no temple in heaven because God himself is going to be with us, right? And this is the great theme that provides the background for John chapter 1, verse 14, that verse that we just read. So I, I've zoomed out, kind of given a, a grand overview of Genesis through Revelation of what this theme of the temple, God dwelling with us, looks like. And now if you could turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 1, John 1, 14. I'll read it again for us. We're zooming in now to John 1. And it says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word, uh, that word dwelling, it, it really means the same thing as the word tabernacle. It's God made his, God tabernacled, just like he made the tabernacle for Israel, God tabernacled with his people in the person of Christ. But now, instead of the high priest offering sacrifices in the tabernacle, now Jesus becomes that sacrifice. He's the one who dies for our sins. He's offered on the altar of the cross. And it's there that forgiveness of sins is offered to those who place their trust in him, right? And that's, that's the heart of the gospel message. It's God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins so that we can dwell with God forever, right? It's, it doesn't stop at justification. It doesn't stop at atonement for our sins, our sins being washed away. All of that is really eventually getting to the point where we can actually now dwell with God forever. The gospel is not, not just fire insurance, something that we believe in to just kind of slip into heaven, but... The greatest part of the gospel is actually the fact that it brings us to God into his presence so that we can relate to him, be known by him, to know him, to be loved by him, and to love him. To be with, that theme of, of being with someone, re- relating with someone, that theme of dwelling, it's, it's one of the, the defining narratives of our culture, is it not? If you, if you look on the, any top 50, top 100 list of, of music or movies, that theme, I guarantee you, will be in every other song and in every other movie. There's, a, there's even a song that was number one in the, in the pop charts um, several years back by a song by Chris, R&B artist Chris Brown. Do you, does anyone know Chris Brown? I'm not sure if I'm too young for 
Um, but there's this artist, his name is Chris Brown. He has a song called, it's just called With You, right? He's, he doesn't even know it, but he's a prophet, you know, alluding to John chapter 1, verse 14, right? This theme of, of with you, it's, it's prevalent in our, in our culture. We, if we examine our own hearts, too, we find that that's true with ourselves, too. We all want to be in relationship with someone. We want deep, intimate friendship. We crave marriage, a, relationship, a soulmate. We want uh, the perfect spouse, 2.5 kids, right? That theme is so prevalent, in, even in our own hearts. These are all good things, but what has happened because of the fall is that we've made these ultimate things, right? We, we want these things to eventually pl- replace the God himself who wants to actually dwell with us. Tim Keller, who's a, a pastor out in New York, he says this one quote um, that I love, and it, it says this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. To be fully known and truly loved, that's really what our hearts are are aching for, is it not? This theme of God dwelling with us if you notice again in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, God made his dwelling among us in the person of Christ. And right after that, it says that we've seen his glory. So God dwelling with us is, is equated to this idea of seeing God's glory. God, God dwells with us by, by showing us his glory. And that, that's a term I think that gets thrown around a lot, um, God's glory. And it's harder to defined because I think part of the definition of glory is that it's indefinable, it's, it's indescribable, right? It's defining the attributes of God, which in our human um, finitude and in our, our finite minds, we can't actually define or understand completely. But just to give some impressions of what God's glory is, it, it includes God's holiness. He is completely set apart from the rest of creation, his perfection, no sin, no shortcomings or limitations, his, his beauty, in, uh, in, the most, in the most genuine and truest sense of the word, he is, he's awesome. It's, it also includes his goodness, his, his mercy, his grace, compassion. Whatever is praiseworthy is really encapsulated in God's glory. So to know, to know God is really to know who God is in, in God's glory, to know God in all of these different attributes. That's what it really means to know God fully. It's, it's really to know him in his glory that's, that's what happened in the tabernacle that I talked about. God's glory resided in the tabernacle once the high priest kind of did the sacrifices and mediated the holiness and the presence of God in the tabernacle. But what does it mean for us to actually see God's glory? In, in John 1, 14, it says that we've seen God's glory through the person of Christ. But what, what, again, what does that mean to see God's glory in the person of Christ? I, I kind of pictured it. I've, I've got this mental image in my head of of Jesus Christ in those paintings. He's got a halo around his head. And I, I don't know, I wonder sometimes when I think about God's glory in Christ, like does that mean Jesus levitated or he just floated around? Um, was, did he glow in the dark? I, I don't really know what that means if I were to hear that for the first time. But for, for us right now, what does that mean for us to see God's glory in Christ? And, and to understand that, can you turn with me to Exodus uh, chapter 32? Exodus uh, chapter 32, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of jump around in between uh, chapters 32 and 34. But if you could open up 
to Exodus 32. And I, I want to read a few passages there, and this provides important context for uh, John 1, 14 that we just read. So Exodus 32, second book in the uh, Old Testament. Exodus 32. Uh, just a little background. In chapter 32, God, God's furious. God is, God is angry with Israel because they've forsaken him. They've created this golden calf, right? You remember that part where they've completely adulterated themselves to, to this golden calf. And instead of worshiping God, they're worshiping this, this stone-cast idol, God's furious. He's, he's angry. He kills thousands of them through a plague. And in chapter 33, verses 2 and 3, if you could turn there with me, I'll read that for us. Right? God, God is here. God is staying true to his promises to give Israel a promised land. Even though they've rebelled and created this golden calf, God is still remaining true to his promises. And he says this, I'll, I'll send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These are all people who are living, native indigenous people in Canaan, in the promised land, that God is going to drive out. And then God says this, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, which is the promised land, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. You are a stiff-necked, stubborn, self-centered people, and I might destroy you on the way. Of us might actually be happy with that situation where God gives us what our hearts desire. He gives us all the material goods that we want, but God doesn't put the demands of actually being with us on us. He, he just lets us go into the whatever promised land that is for us, but God is not there with us. I think some of us would be happy with that if we're honest with ourselves. There, there's a pastor who asked this question in a sermon one time, and I thought it was a very penetrating question. He basically asked, if, if you were to receive heaven... And in heaven, all of earth's pleasures, in its most purified forms imaginable, all of that you can experience in heaven. You could be reunited with all of your loved ones uh, in heaven. Um, Any experience that you've ever dreamed of or imagined, all of that you can have in heaven. No pain, no sickness, no limitations when playing sports. Everyone could dunk a basketball or figure skate and do a triple sow cow, right? Um, no limitations physically. We replace these decaying bodies with a, a glorified one that never ages. If you could have all of that, but there's no God, would you still want that? Would you still want to be there? You could have all of those pleasures that I just mentioned, but there's no God. God's presence is not there. Would you still want that? If I am honest with myself, there are moments when I think I would want that. That sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. But not Moses, not Moses. If you look with me in chapter 33, verses 15 to 16, Moses, Moses says this, after, after God says, you can go to the promised land, I, I, I have to stay true to my word. I promised you that I would give you this land, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses responds this way in chapter 33, verses 15 to 16. Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Basically, Moses is asking, what's the point of the promised land if your presence, God, is not going to be there? 
What's the point of heaven if not the unmediated and unhindered presence of God? In, in chapter 33, verse 18, if you could look there, Moses continues to plead. So, yeah, what's the point of the promised land? What's the point of the promised land if God's presence won't be there? And Moses, Moses says, that's, that's ridiculous. Of course I don't want the promised land if your presence won't be there. And he continues to plead his case. In, in verse 18, chapter 33, Moses then asks God, show me your glory, right? Do you remember that part? Show, he says, show me your glory. He wants to... Not only does he, he doesn't want to go to the promised land if God won't be there, but he wants us to know and see and experience God in his absolute fullness. And he says, show me your glory. I don't know if he actually knows what he's asking for, but he, he wants to see God in his fullness. And God replies, I will make my goodness pass before you, but you can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And God hides Moses in a cleft of the rock, and his glory passes by. As God's glory passes by, he declares the following, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So Moses asks God to show me your glory. But again, Moses doesn't know what he's asking for. And that's the whole reason why there was that tabernacle, that temple, remember, in, the, in, in, in Israel, because God can't just reveal himself unhindered because everyone's going to die. Everyone's going to be destroyed. And when Moses asks God, show me your glory, God can't just show up lest Moses just could be completely incinerated. So he says, I'm going to hide you in this little crevice in the rock and I'm only going to let my goodness pass by. You won't be able to see the parts of me that will kill you. I'm only going to show you the good parts. And that last phrase, when, as God passes by, he, he declares that phrase. And the last part of that, the Lord, the Lord is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That, that couplet, that love and faithfulness, that's, that's pointing forward to, again, this verse in John chapter 1, verse 14. You remember when I read, full of grace and truth? That full of grace and truth in, in this Exodus 33 passage, the, the steadfast love and faithfulness, it's basically the same couplet. It's the same formula. And so in John 1.14, when it says full of grace and truth, it's an allusion back to Exodus 33 of God's goodness that passes Moses by as Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock. The, the totality of God's goodness, God's mercy and compassion is encapsulated in that phrase, grace and truth, or, or love and faithfulness. Do you, do you remember that scene from um, X-Men where, again, this might be a generational thing. I'll just, I'll just, make, I'll just picture it, uh, create a picture for you, but basically there's this person named Jean Grey who um, maybe is like the strongest. So X-Men is about these mutants, if um, you're not aware of that, but they're like, uh, there's one person named Jean Grey who's maybe the most powerful mutant she dies, and then she comes back to life as this character named the Phoenix. And when she comes back to life, she's, she was super powerful before, but when she comes back to life, she's even more powerful, but now she's like out of control. Um, before, her powers were harnessed for good, but now she comes back as this Phoenix, and she's like just super scary because she can't be restrained. And there's a scene where she just starts like levitating off the ground and her power is just being thrown in every direction, and she can't be stopped. All the, the, the mutants out who are super powerful, like, like 
This is hilarious. I can't believe I'm actually using this analogy. Um, like Wolverine and Cyclops and um, um, Professor, Professor Xavier, who's like another super powerful mutant. Anyways, Jean Grey just levitates and Gerald is just like melting in front of her. For some reason, I thought of that weird mental image when I thought about the glory of God because I, it's, it's kind of a similar situation where when we're in the presence of God, we just completely disintegrate. We, we're destroyed because of our sin. We can't actually stand in the presence of God without being destroyed. So when Moses asks, show me your glory, again, he doesn't know what he's asking for, but, and God has to, because of Moses' sin, he has to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock. And then he only lets his goodness pass by. He only exposes Moses to the, the good parts of him while he hides Moses in the rock. Moses is sinful. He's covered by this rock, and that's the only way that he's able to experience the glory of God. And that, that refrain, that, that story, that's, that's really this, that's the gospel message right there being preached in Exodus 33. For ourselves, we can't actually experience the, the presence and the glory of God without some kind of mediator, the person of Christ and the blood of Christ. We can't experience the glory of God without being hidden in some kind of protection. For Moses, that was in the cleft of the rock. For us, we're hidden in the blood of Christ. When God passes by us, he sees the blood of Christ and it only exposes us to his grace and his mercy this is the gospel being preached through Exodus 33. We all deserve to die. We all deserve to melt and disintegrate, deserve to be cast down into hell forever. But because of the blood of Christ that covers us, we're now able to experience the presence of this infinitely holy God. The weight of all of our sin, the punishment that we deserved, is on the person of Christ. And now we can only experience the goodness of God. And that's why John 1.14 says that we can now see the glory of God because it's been manifested in the person of Christ. In the person of Christ, there we see the goodness of God personified. We see the glory of God in the gospel of Christ. And in the New Testament, that's why the gospel is often called the gospel of the glory of God because to see God's glory is, is actually to know this gospel of Christ, to see the person of Christ through this great act of the gospel. Jesus Christ was someone who was perfect, holy, beautiful, so gracious in his life and death that he was a living manifestation of the glory of God. And because of the cross, we're not consumed by the wrath of God, but we only experience the goodness. When Moses saw the goodness of God, when he saw the good parts of God's glory, he worshipped the Lord. He worshiped the Lord and he said this in Exodus 34, verse 9. If you could turn there, if you have your Bibles open, in Exodus 34, verse 9. And what I think is maybe the, the climactic moment in this whole passage, Exodus 34, 9 says, Moses says this, Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. You see, remember the promised land was supposed to be Moses' inheritance. It was supposed to be the inheritance of Israel. That's what God promised to Abraham way back in the beginning. The promised land was supposed to be their inheritance, but Moses doesn't care about the inheritance. If it means God's presence won't be there, he doesn't want the inheritance. He asks God to take us as your inheritance. He wants to be inherited by God. He wants to be God's property. He wants to be in God's presence forever. And this is how he responds to the glory of God. He doesn't care 
If, and he actually doesn't get to go into the promised land. He doesn't care anyway because what he wants is the unmediated presence of God. He doesn't want the promised land. He doesn't want any material wealth that he's offered if it means that God's presence won't be with him. In, uh, in the movie Goodwill Hunting, that was in the mid-90s, so I think that one might be um, more relevant. In the movie Goodwill Hunting, the, the main character's name is Will Hunting. He's played by uh, Matt Damon. And his love interest in the movie is this person called Skylar, played by Minnie Driver. And you know, Matt Damon, uh, he's, he's, uh, he, they call him a Southie. He's from South Boston, which is kind of like the inner city of Boston. He's, he's an orphan. He's been through the foster system from family to family. He's got scars and bruises on his back and his arms because he's been beaten um, as a child. And um, he finds this person named Skylar. They meet at a bar. And Skylar is a Harvard-educated, um, Stanford Medical School-bound person who's from a, a great family, a rich family. She's a, she's a trust fund baby, right? She's inherited all this wealth from her father. And and because Will Hunting has been abandoned his whole life, he's, a, he's an orphan, he's gone from foster school, foster home from foster home, he's got this fear of rejection, he's got a fear of attachment, getting too close to people. Even though he craves it, he craves that relational intimacy with someone, but he, he protects himself from rejection by not getting too close to people. He doesn't want to get people to get too close to him, lest he get rejected eventually and feel even a, a deeper pain. And... Skylar asks him, hey, do you want to come to, to, to Stanford with me? And to, to Will, that's awesome. Isn't that what he wants? He wants to be in relationship with this girl. She's asking him to come with. But for him, it kind of signaled, oh, my gosh, what's happened? This is moving too fast. What if I get rejected? So all the fears that he's had of rejection all come pouring into his heart in this one moment. And he's, he's trying to actually now dump Skylar because he's too afraid. He's too afraid of letting Skylar into his life, and he wants to actually dump her. And he starts making these crazy accusations of, of Skylar. She's going to run off to Stanford with some rich guy, and she's going to leave him um, in, in South Boston and not really care for him anymore. And you know, they're going to sit around with all the other trust fund babies just sharing stories of how they too went, went slumming one time and dated some other guy from the other side of town. And he's saying all this stuff, and Skylar, she, she says this. She says, why are you saying this? What's your obsession with this money? My father died when I was 13 and I inherited this money. Nearly every day I wake up and I wish I could give that back, that I would give it back in a second if it meant I could have one more day with him, but I can't, and that's my life and I deal with it. Skylar is saying, I have all this wealth, I have this inheritance, but it means nothing to me. I wish I could actually just be with my father who gave it to me in the first place. If I could just have one more day with him, I wouldn't care about all of this money. And it's that theme of, of dwelling. It's, it really gets to that deepest part of our hearts that craves that relational intimacy. We don't, at the end of the day, we don't want wealth and, and riches and acclaim if we can't have that relational yearning that we all crave. But with Skylar and with all of us and with every human relationship, that craving can't find its end in a human because of conflict, because of sickness and death. Every human relationship will come to an end. But we have, we have a heavenly father who, who will never leave us nor forsake us, who, 
can't be separated from us by anything, not even death, because Christ on the cross experienced the death that we deserved. Death can't separate us from that relational intimacy that we can have with God the Father because Christ took that death, the punishment on himself. That relational intimacy, the, the dwelling that we all crave, ultimately it, can, it finds its end in the person of Christ, God's glory dwelling in the person of Christ through the gospel. When we're, when we're offered our own version of the promised land, whatever that might be, um, that could be our own families, it could be career, some version of success, whatever it is that we want, our version of the promised land, would we rather have that or would we rather have the presence of God in Christ? Are we like the prodigal son, demanding the father to give us our inheritance and effectively wishing death upon the father? Or do we find our true riches, our true status, by being with God and being, being known by God in, in our deepest parts. Those of you who have tasted the presence of God know that it's not a contest. There is nothing else that we would rather have in this world than to be with God in Christ forever. I'm just going to end with this, um, this hymn. I think a lot of us may have, may have heard it. It's one of my favorite hymns. And it, it's, it says this, I, I would sing it, but I don't want to discourage anyone. It, it says this, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. Yes, I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Please join me in prayer. As, as we just take a few moments to reflect on our own hearts and that craving that we have for, for companionship, for dwelling, to someone to know us, to know us in our completeness and yet to still love us. And op- let's open our hearts together to the God to the God who wants to dwell with us, to who wants to be with us, even though he knows us completely because of Christ, he, he can still dwell with us. Let's take a few moments to reflect on that.